You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining The American Revolution. Today, episode 157, British Land at Head of Elk. When we last left the Howe brothers back in episode 150, they had just loaded up their army aboard hundreds of ships and sailed off from New York out into the Atlantic Ocean in July 1777. For several weeks, no one was quite sure where they were going until the British finally landed at Head of Elk, Maryland. Uh, what we today call Elkton. To get there, the fleet had to sail to the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, down past Norfolk, Virginia, then back up through the Chesapeake Bay into the Elk River before finally landing. The fleet, led by Admiral Richard Howe in the HMS Eagle, skipped the traditional landing areas, moving up muddy-bottomed rivers to find a remote site as far up the waters as the ships would go. In the very pre-dawn hours of August 25, 1777, the British Army began to disembark at Head of Elk. In order to surprise the Americans, Howe had avoided the well-defended Delaware Bay. He had also avoided all the established ports in the Chesapeake that would have made landing much easier. Head of Elk was a tiny hamlet without a large port. The water in the area was shallow and muddy, the British ships of the line, the larger ones especially, could not just pull up to a port and disembark their soldiers. The weary men, who had been stuck aboard ship some for six weeks, had to climb down onto smaller boats to row ashore. Uh, much of the army unloaded at Turkey Point, a small ferry on the Elk River. The process of moving more than 15,000 soldiers ashore, along with all their equipment, was a slow and tedious process. The Howe brothers were fortunate that the Americans did not confront them at the landing site. Fighting a battle while disembarking could easily have become a nightmare for the British. The British had also sailed their ships so far upriver that they were vulnerable with almost no room to maneuver. By the end of a long day, a large portion of the army still remained aboard ship. While those who had landed began to settle into camps and scout out the area, many more still spent yet another night on the water. Aside from the thousands of men, there were many tons of equipment, including hundreds of cannon, tens of thousands of cannonballs, not to mention food, tents, and other supplies. Loading those ships had taken weeks. Unloading them in days was a backbreaking process. The British did not know when the Americans might attack and wanted to get moving as quickly as possible. By the end of the second day, Tuesday, most of the army had unloaded, including all the horses. More than half of the 320 horses that had been loaded onto ships in New York 
had died before landing in Maryland. Poor food and conditions made survival difficult. Many of the horses that did survive would still need a great deal of time to recuperate before they would be useful. Many of the soldiers were not in much better shape. Twenty-seven soldiers had died during the six-week voyage, and many more were sick. Even for those not bedridden, weeks of poor conditions below deck with meager rations meant that they needed time to recover as well. It would still be several more days before all the arms and equipment, including the tents for the soldiers, would be unloaded. To make things worse for most of the soldiers, who did not yet have their tents, a terrible rain soaked the men who scrambled to build crude shelters for themselves. A large amount of British gunpowder was also water damaged during this storm. The trip to Maryland from New York had required men to remain on board for as long as a typical cross-Atlantic trip from Britain usually took. For all of that effort, the British Army still faced about a 50-mile march to Philadelphia. Three months earlier, the British Army had encamped at Brunswick, New Jersey, only 60 miles northeast of Philadelphia. When they were in New Brunswick, the Continental Army was behind them, and nothing stood between the British and Philadelphia. Now that they had gone through all the trouble to move to Maryland, Washington had time to move his army into position to defend the city. General Washington had received word that the British were in the Chesapeake preparing to land, about two days before the actual landing. He had marched his Continental Army through Philadelphia on their way to the south in order to meet the enemy. By the evening of August 25th, hours after the British had begun their debarkation, the Continentals set up camp at Wilmington, Delaware, about 20 miles from the British landing point. Rather than attacking immediately, General Washington sent out orders for Pennsylvania and Delaware militia to join the Continentals in Wilmington and prepare for an attack. His men were tired after a two-day march from their camp north of Philadelphia and needed to rest before they could engage with the enemy. Some of his soldiers were actually still marching into town, and Washington did not have any good intelligence about the enemy. That evening, Washington held a council of war with some of his top officers to decide whether they should attack the following day or wait a little longer. Now, our source for this meeting comes from a British officer who got his information from an aide of another officer who attended the meeting, so it was third-hand information. But according to that source, the French and German officers argued that they should strike right away while the British were still getting unloaded. The American officers counseled to wait. They needed to find out exactly what strength they were facing, continue to gather their own forces, and preferably force Howe to attack the Americans at a location of the Americans' choosing. Washington agreed to wait on any attack. The next morning, August 26th, General Washington set out personally to reconnoiter the enemy. With him was General Green, the Marquis de Lafayette, and a brand new Brigadier General, George Whedon. Back in episode 131, I mentioned that Congress had appointed a whole pack of new generals, including nine brigadiers in one day. One of those new appointees was George Whedon. Since this is the first time since then I've had cause to mention him, I'll give him a short introduction. 
Whedon was born in Virginia to a minor plantation owner. He received a commission during the French and Indian War, rising to the rank of lieutenant captain by the end of the war. Following the war, he married and took over his wife's tavern near Fredericksburg. Whedon was acquainted with Washington not only through his military service, but also because Washington was a frequent patron of his tavern. Whedon was also the brother-in-law of General Hugh Mercer. The two men had married sisters. Whedon was an outspoken patriot at his tavern. One English traveler noted that Whedon was, quote, very active and zealous in blowing the seeds of sedition. In 1774, he and Mercer formed an independent militia company of patriots. Once the war began, Whedon took a commission as a lieutenant colonel in the 3rd Virginia Regiment, which was soon incorporated into the Continental Army. During the first year of the war, Whedon's regiment remained in Virginia, defending attacks led by the royal governor, Lord Dunmore. When the Continentals moved to New York, Whedon's regiment joined them. Whedon distinguished himself, participating in the crossing of the Delaware. Washington put him in command of moving the Hessian prisoners back to Pennsylvania after the Battle of Trenton. As part of Congress's plan to greatly enlarge the Continental Army following the Princeton victory, Whedon received his commission as Brigadier General. General Whedon joined the more senior officers on this trip to reconnoiter the enemy. Washington's small company reached a hill about two miles from the enemy camp where they could view the British. That afternoon, a terrible rainstorm caused the generals to take shelter in a nearby farmhouse where they spent the night. Now, everyone agreed this was a great risk. If an informer got word back to the British that Washington was nearby without his army, it would have been an easy step to capture him much like they had done to General Charles Lee in the previous year. Washington's luck held out, though. His small troop left at dawn the following morning and rode back to the American lines. Later that day, General Howe set up command in the very same house. There's also a story that both General Howe and General Washington at one point spotted each other on hills about one mile apart and carefully eyed each other. Over the next few days, both armies continued to consolidate and maneuver. The British and Hessian scouts scoured the area for supplies and for friendly locals. General Washington continued to survey the land personally, looking for ground to set up a proper defense, as well as figure out exactly what path the British might take. Part of Washington's problem in setting up a defense was that he was not sure where the British might move. The almost certain end goal was Philadelphia, but Howe could move his army up the coast of Delaware and rely on the support of the British Navy as it worked its way up the river. Another possibility was that the British could move on Lancaster, where there were large amounts of relatively unguarded stores and supplies. There were also hundreds of British and Hessian prisoners of war being held in that area. Such a large-scale raid across farms and villages to the west of Philadelphia would have made the landing at the Chesapeake Bay much more sensible. Otherwise, why didn't Howe simply march across New Jersey? That would have been much faster and forced the same sort of confrontation with Washington's Continentals. 
Washington also feared the possibility that the British might try a two-pronged attack, with Howe moving on Philadelphia from the south, while General Henry Clinton marched a second British army out of New York City to attack Philadelphia from New Jersey. It was even possible that General Burgoyne might march through New York in time to join up with a final three-pronged push on Philadelphia. In truth, though, even the British did not seem exactly sure what they were going to do next. General Howe left a few regiments at Turkey Point in Maryland to defend the fleet as it slowly tried to make its way back out to the Chesapeake Bay. General Howe and Admiral Howe agreed that the fleet would sail back to the Delaware Bay and then up the Delaware River, where the Army and Navy would meet again at Newcastle, Delaware. But, as we'll see, that never happened. British officers complained that they had no maps of the area and no intelligence about the enemy or the locals. Since the few horses they had were too sick to ride, they also had no real cavalry to reconnoiter the area. Hopes of attracting many local loyalists to assist the army quickly faded as well. Despite these setbacks, the British had no choice but to move forward. Even before the entire British army had made it to land, the British began to explore the area around them. Some of the first troops off the ships were Howe's best light infantry companies, some grenadiers, and Hessian Jaegers. The soldiers began to scout out the area for miles around, looking for food and forage. They also prepared to meet with local Tories, who they were told were common in the area. However, they found most of the land abandoned, while much of the area was still an unsettled wilderness. Locals had also largely abandoned the region and gone into hiding. General Howe had issued strict orders to prevent his soldiers from marauding the region. A key part of his plan was returning the king's peace to the region and convincing people so disposed to support the regulars in their efforts to reclaim the area. On August 27th, two days after the landing began, Howe published another one of his declarations offering pardon to any rebels who surrendered and took an oath to support the king. Most of Howe's hungry soldiers, however, were more concerned about finding food. They had been on partial rations during the voyage and were more than ready for some fresh food and vegetables. They did capture some abandoned farm animals and also hunted the abundant wildlife in the region. Some of the Hessian Jaegers reported good hunting, but so much effort without rest after leaving the ships resulted in several of them dying from heat stroke. They were also interested in plunder. As Captain John Andre put it, quote, there was a good deal of plunder committed by the troops, notwithstanding the strictest prohibitions. According to one story, one soldier was accused of chopping off the fingers of a local woman in order to steal her rings. General Howe issued orders to execute any soldier found leaving camp without orders or found with plunder. Howe's orders to execute his own soldiers for plundering was not the only concern for British and Hessian soldiers. On August 31st, one officer recorded that his men had found two regulars on the side of the road with their throats slit. Two other grenadiers were found hanged. In each of these cases, the victims were believed to have been plundering people's homes. 
None of this seemed to discourage the continued attacks on whatever small villages or isolated farms that the armies could find. One British officer in a letter home noted the pervasive and shocking level of plundering. In his letter, he expressed some concern that someday these lawless British soldiers might return home and be unleashed on the English countryside. Of course, the plundering was not one-sided. On September 4th, Washington included an angry rant about his own soldiers plundering local civilians, saying that there would be no mercy for any offenders who were caught. Plundering aside, Howe was eager to get his army on the move. He tried to send out scouts almost as soon as the first soldiers had landed, but as I said, a torrential rain and the condition of his soldiers delayed any large movements for several days. It would be more than a week before his army began to make any significant movements. The scouts, mostly Hessians, who did venture out, found a hostile welcome. Local militia fired on a Hessian advance force at Gilpin's Bridge. The militia destroyed the bridge and pulled back. The militia did report capturing nearly 100 prisoners and deserters as they picked off small groups of foraging parties. Some smaller groups were not captured, but were rather just ambushed and killed. To assist with the harassment of the British, Washington put together a temporary regiment of 700 riflemen, with 100 pulled from each of the seven Continental Brigades. He put this special force under the command of General William Maxwell. Normally, this sort of duty would have been covered by Daniel Morgan's riflemen, but Washington had dispatched Morgan to upstate New York to assist with the defense against General Burgoyne's Northern Army, still on the march at this same time. The riflemen were supplemented by another 300 militia to occupy Iron Hill, the high ground near Cooch's Bridge in Delaware. This was about six miles northeast of Head of Elk and about 15 miles south of Washington's main encampment at Wilmington. Iron Hill gave a good view of the whole region, from the Delaware River to the east to the Head of Elk Landing where the British fleet was still unloading. It sat on the southwestern side of Christiana Creek, where some officers had recommended that Washington make his stand. Instead, Washington remained with the main army further back near Wilmington. He relied on Maxwell to make his first engagement. On September 3rd, Hessian Jaegers approached Iron Hill. While they were still miles away from the hill, they ran into an ambush. Skirmishers on both sides engaged in a running battle back to the hill, where the bulk of Maxwell's Continentals had entrenched themselves for a defense. About 450 Jaegers approached roughly a thousand defenders. As the two sides fired on each other, another 1,300 British Grenadiers and other regulars marched up to support the Jaegers. The two sides engaged in a firefight lasting most of the day, about seven hours. There is sometimes a popular myth that the British always fought in lines and did not hide behind trees or other cover as the Americans did. In truth, both sides used both traditional and non-traditional tactics as circumstances dictated. Descriptions of the Jaeger assault on Iron Hill have the Hessian soldiers crawling on their bellies in the underbrush as they move forward, taking shots at the enemy when the opportunity arose. 
As the battle progressed, the British brought up three cannons to use against the Continentals. The Continentals had no artillery with them, but they were able to keep the enemy at bay with their rifles. The Americans also, however, did not carry extra ammunition, and over the course of the day, simply ran out of bullets. Later in the day, General Howe personally joined the front lines. He ordered the Hessians to storm the hill and drive off the Americans. There is an account of some really fierce hand-to-hand fighting on the hill, although casualty rates for the day don't seem to suggest it. The Continentals held Kucha's Bridge until the soldiers on Iron Hill had a chance to cross and retreat. The British then stormed the bridge, driving back the Continentals. According to the British reports, the Americans fled back to Wilmington in poor order, abandoning their wounded. Casualties for what later became known as either the Battle of Kucha's Bridge or the Battle of Iron Hill are, as usual, much in dispute. Some British accounts list only three killed and 20 wounded on their side. Other accounts say as many as 30 were killed and a similar number wounded. An eyewitness says that 10 wagons full of wounded moved back to the main British camp. American reports say they only had about 20 killed and maybe another 20 wounded. But British reports say that they buried 41 American bodies. Whatever the exact number, the fighting at Kucha's Bridge would be the only battle to take place in Delaware during the course of the war. Washington braced for an assault in Delaware on his lines near Red Clay Creek. However, that never happened. Instead, General Howe gave up his plans to meet up with the British Army at Newcastle on the Delaware River. After taking Iron Hill, Howe remained in place for several days, using the hill to reconnoiter the region. The Americans sent skirmishers to harass British outposts over the next few days, but made no attempt to retake the hill. On September 8th, before dawn, the British and Hessians packed up marched through Newark, Delaware, and continued north to Hokessen. This was around Washington's right flank. At that point, the British could have chosen to assault the American flank and push them back against the Delaware River. Howe sent a force that came within two miles of Washington's lines, giving the impression that that might be the plan. However, Howe had no intention of attacking Washington on ground of Washington's choosing. Instead, Howe turned his army west and moved into Pennsylvania. By avoiding a battle, Howe could have simply marched miles to the west and then north toward Philadelphia. The Continentals had no real defenses along this route. In order to avoid this, Washington had to march his soldiers west very quickly, taking up a position along the Brandywine River. And that is where the Continentals made their plan to make a stand against the British Army. So next week, the Battle of Brandywine. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options 
as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to Trey Nance and George Davis, who support this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to Noah Simmons, who has joined the podcast on Patreon at the Privy Council level. Everyone who can support the show on Patreon helps cover my expenses and allows me to keep the show free for those who can't afford to contribute. Also, one quick correction from last week's episode about the Siege of Fort Henry. I referred to the British officer known as Hair Buyer because he paid Native warriors for Patriot scalps as Colonel John Hamilton. Of course, his name was Colonel Henry Hamilton. So, sorry for that slip of the tongue. The week of this episode's release marks the third anniversary of the release of my first episode. At about 1.2 million downloads, I can honestly say that the success of the show has surpassed all of my expectations. People listen to this podcast in all 50 states, as well as all Canadian provinces. Last year, at the end of my second year in the podcast, I compared how popular the podcast was in different states as a percentage of the overall state population. This year, by that same standard, the podcast is most popular in the District of Columbia, followed by Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Delaware, and Maryland. Last place goes to Louisiana. When I looked at this last year, Hawaii was in last place, but the Hawaiians have stepped up their game and moved up to 48th place. In looking over my download statistics, what surprised me most is the popularity of the podcast overseas. This is a U.S. history podcast, and I expected primarily Americans to be interested in the topic. But about 10% of the downloads come from outside the U.S. As you might guess, Canada, Britain, and Australia make up a big chunk of the international downloads. The most popular non-English-speaking country on the list is Sweden, at number 5 overall. Last year, Norway was in the number five slot and top of the non-English countries. But since then, both Sweden and Germany have passed Norway. I should also note that when I did the foreign countries, I did not adjust by population. So even in terms of total numbers, places like Sweden, Germany, and Denmark were beating much larger countries like India and China. The most mind-blowing change for me was that at the two-year anniversary, I had a little over 300,000 downloads. 
This year, we are now at just about 1.2 million downloads, and that means the podcast got three times as many downloads in the past year as it did in the first two years combined. Some folks have asked me how much longer this podcast will go. Since I write the episodes as we go along, I don't really know exactly how many episodes it will take to complete the series. We're currently in late 1777, meaning we have about four more years of really active war to get through, plus about two more years before the Treaty of Paris in 1783 ends the war. Since it takes me about six to nine months of podcasting to get through a year of the war, I'd guess we are looking at probably another four years or so. At that point, I'll have to reevaluate and decide whether I want to continue on into the federal era and the adoption of the Constitution, or whether it's time to call it quits. I guess much of that will depend on the level of interest at the time. Whatever the future, I want to thank everyone who has listened and taken an interest in this great conflict that created the United States. I hope you have enjoyed the ride so far, and will continue to do so for years to come. In this week's episode, we kicked off the Philadelphia campaign with the British armies landing at the Chesapeake Bay. I also covered Cooch's Bridge, which is the only Revolutionary War battle fought in the state of Delaware. General Howe and Admiral Howe thought that the capture of Philadelphia might end the war, or at least give them some glory in London. As we'll see in future episodes, despite the success of the campaign, it really accomplished neither. There are quite a few books that cover these events as an introduction to a larger story about the Battle of Brandywine or the Philadelphia Campaign more generally. However, I did find one book that covered just the events that I discussed today. It is called The British Invasion of Delaware, August to September 1777. Although this book focuses almost exclusively on the landing and the Battle of Cooch's Bridge, it's not a very long book. The book itself is about 100 pages, and just about half of that is maps, notes, and index. So we're left with a frustratingly brief narrative. That said, what is there is well-written and informative. It starts with the landing at the Chesapeake and concludes, just as today's episode did, with the British marching off to fight the Battle of Brandywine. The book is co-written by Gerald Kaufman, who is a professor at the University of Delaware, but not a history professor. He's actually a professor of public policy and does a lot of environmental work. The co-author is Michael Gallagher, who is an officer in the Delaware chapter of the Sons of the American Revolution. They first published the book in 2013. As I said, it is a pretty short and quick read, but it is one that is just focused on these events. My online recommendation this week is a pamphlet on the unveiling of a monument at the Battle of Cooch's Bridge. It was first published in 1900 and is available as an ebook on archive.org. Because Cooch's Bridge is Delaware's one battlefield, it probably gets more attention than it deserves out of a sense of state pride. That said, the fight was the first substantial resistance that the British faced after landing in Maryland, and it does deserve some mention. 
The pamphlet goes over the battle itself, as well as including numerous other things related to the monument and its establishment. You can find the document by searching for Kucha's Bridge on archive.org, or, as always, I have a direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.